Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. I'm very hot. How are you? This week's episode is the episode that was meant to be last week, but uh, as mentioned, there are a couple of mix-ups with time zones and people moving around and schedules and this, that and the other. So we are delighted to be able to bring you our interview with New York Times bestseller Brit Bennett this week. Unfortunately, what that does mean is that Josie wasn't available at the time we ended up talking to Brit. So Robin is talking to Brit. But before that, we recorded a catch up with Robin and Josie about what they've been reading during the last week of lockdown. So there's that. And then there's our chat with Brit. Brit's book, The Vanishing Half, is available now from wherever you get books, which is hopefully an excellent independent bookseller. As always, you can hear an extended version of this episode, more Robin and Josie and more Robin and Brit, by subscribing at patreon.com slash bookshambles. And if you're subscribed at the behind the scenes tier, you'll also be able to see the video call between uh, Robin and Brit, the unedited version of that, uh, as well as previous video episodes as well, like last week, or the week before rather, with Adam K. So patreon.com slash bookshambles, that's where you go to support us making this podcast as we, I mean, I don't even know how many episodes we're at now, it must be well over 200, we're not very good with marking our anniversaries, but all of that has been possible thanks to your support on Patreon. So thank you. And don't forget to check out all the other bits and bobs going on on the Cosmic Shambles Network At the moment, while we can't do live shows, the latest show and tell show with Robin and Josie features Jay Wilgoose from Public Service Broadcasting. We had a chat with Helen Crimmins as well. Uh, The Genetics Shambles series is still ongoing. The weekend or the Sunday Science Shambles Q&As and podcasts. There's there's lots going on. Just go to CosmicShambles.com and you can find out about everything. Okay, enough of that. Here is today's episode. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today's guest is Britt Bennett. and uh, But before Britt, because uh, I am uh, going to be interviewing Britt on my own, this is not out of uh, some moment of, uh, of crazed egotism for me. Uh, it's down to uh, the crazy kind of lockdown schedule of, uh, of all of us, including Josie Long. How are you, Josie? Good, thank you. I am... I am trying to make this seem that I'm not currently lying down due to the fact that our flat is so punishingly hot. There's nothing else to do. And I've been out working today and just came back like, oh, God. Yeah, oh, the no. realisation of the Graham Green novel you're in today, or is it the day the earth caught fire? Um, I've, I've tried to, 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 to get, not exactly some balance, but I found this. And I thought it was the first time I'd ever bought this, but I don't think I have my original copy. But I've just returned to reading Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber. Oh, um, wow. Have you ever read them? The no, I, and I've got them. I've, I've just got bought them. 
they're so and it connects with your flowers there beautiful illustration on the cover illustration by james marsh um and i thought yeah i thought this was a copy i bought when i was about 15 years old um but it's not it's actually one that i must have bought to replace it but it's just it's uh, for any of you don't know that neil jordan's rather wonderful um fairy tale film with angela lansbury amongst others uh what big teeth she has uh Oh yeah, that's a. I, I do enjoy the uh, the vintage reprints as well. Actually, in terms of design, I'm not red wise children. Oh, she's such a great. Um, I was I was down in uh, when I was one of the times I was doing the slapstick festival probably two years ago. I, you know when you walk past a gallery you've never been into and it, then you suddenly see a postcode and it was all art that had been inspired by uh, Angela Carter's work or work that had actually been created for things that she she created in the first place. Really beautiful. I think there's a book of it and I can't remember the name of the uh, uh, exhibition, but it's fantastic. Wow, I've been reading. And it was recommended by Dina Nieri, uh, who wrote The Ungrateful Refugee, who we, we interviewed uh, a month ago, wasn't it? Maybe two, maybe five, let's be real, who knows anymore. Um, but she recommended me ZZ Packer. Although, how can you see ZZ? I know ZZ Top, but I see it and I read ZZ. Mm. It's very hard. It's just the letters that said ZZ Packer's uh, book, which is called Drinking Coffee Elsewhere, short stories. And they are fantastic. So like some uh, the quote, um, there's a Zadie Smith quote that says that there's very few writers that are natural writers and ZZ Packer is one of them. And that's what you feel is you're like, ah, oh, this is all of the all of the incredible work is so deft. There's so much to them, and yet you read them. They're a joy. They're an easy reading joy, and yet they're so deep. And I just read uh, one about a woman in a very intense evangelical church, uh, and it reminded me a bit of um, the James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been really enjoying them a lot. I really recommend them. That's what I'm looking at. Uh, sorry, I did a really dumb thing, which was I bought a study guide to them i don't know why i think because i was buying it and then it was like would you like to buy that and i was like yeah i'd love to read a study guide and then i got it and it was like one of those a-level cheat notes things that i really really abhor and i was like what have i done i think i thought it was like a fun companion thing <laughs> it, it's like you, when you make that mistake on a uh any kind of reader kindle whatever where uh, you go oh i really love the films of john waters and there's a new book out and you go no no, there's not a new book out. There's someone has mm, written mm. an on, you know, that bit where you just yeah. go, I really, I was so, and then I, when I got to the cinema, it was actually closed that day. So that's why I didn't see Pink Flamingos. But when I, and there's a weird bit in it where it does some eating some like dog poo and everyone talks about it. And it, and you go, this is not hey, Dillis this Powell. Is not a this book. Is definitely not. Di <laughs> but I don't know if Dillis Powell actually ever uh, reviewed Pink Flamingos. I do hope she did, but I imagine she probably didn't. I imagine they may well have given her the day off. And the, uh, the Angela Carter book, Trench Looks Up, for me. Strange Worlds is uh, the look at her uh, her art. I've also been buying these. I've, I've I've suddenly returned to eBay recently, and I've been buying lots of weird, trashy mags. I've been finding out women's magazines are some of them highly collectible. Like I used to be a huge fan of Marie Claire. Um, obviously, I'm much older than you. From the early days, 1987, Marie Claire would have these huge essays in. It was really interesting. It was a bit like yes, Arena in the early days. 
it was the only one that that was the only part I was ever interested in as a teenager. I couldn't bear women's magazines because I've never been interested in fashion or makeup. But that was the only bit I was interested in. There would be like one bit of like reportage. Yeah, they were great. And uh, Arena, uh, which was kind of the men's magazine, uh, mm. that similarly had huge, proper articles about stuff. But I was looking up on eBay and I was going, 45 quid? I used to have that and I used it to make a bad collage. Yeah. So yeah, I have yeah. been, you just don't know. And, and there's a magazine called Nova. 1960s and onwards and i think it's still i think it's gone in and out print i think it may well still be available now and again you look up you go that's 50 pounds of beautiful design mm -hmm. um so instead i've been buying these 14 magazines uh, oh. yeah doubt wow 14 magazine little vivisection uh illustration on that one there. wow now, I've got the listings, of course, as well, as usual, uh, for today, just for anyone who's listening to this. Um, so uh, this Saturday, uh, Saturday, the 19th of uh, August, 1989, uh, the yeah. Chocolate Club uh, will be starting. That's at the Stag, of course, in 17 yeah. Brestonham Place, as you know. And uh, resident host Eugene Cheese will be introducing award-winning stand-up Jenny Eclair, entertaining double act, the singing farmer, and character comedian Brendan Summers. So that is uh, uh, this I'm Saturday, the 19th of August, 1989. I'll get down there. I miss Eugene Cheese at the Chuckle Club. Oh, it's so sad. It was such. It was. It was an intro. Yeah, th those. Uh, oh, look. There's a kind of. It looks like it's a a male version of Not I of Samuel Beckett's Not I. I, I don't know if he'd have been happy with that. That's at the. Uh, that's at the Tabard Theatre at the moment, and uh, that's running till the 9th of September, nineteen eighty nine. Oh, um, I'll get down there if I can travel back in time for uh, twenty one years. And don't forget the marquee uh, this week, uh, Terror Twins, Wolfsbane, The Trudy, Skid Row, Underneath What, Tom Robinson Band, and then uh, The Cutting Crew is uh, this week at, uh, at the marquee, of course, on uh, 105 Charing Cross Road. So that's, uh, that's the listings for you uh, for, uh, uh, for next week, 1989. Well, Robin, it's been lovely to catch up. Yeah, you've got to go I'm off. Sorry. I'm going to now interview uh, Britt Bennett, which I'm very much looking forward to, and I'm going to talk about uh, James Baldwin. So you're missing something. Oh, I'm, in, I'm really envious. Josie Long, uh, I will uh, see you next week. Yes, see you later. Bye. Thanks, Josie. Here's Britt. Hi, Britt. I, I want to start off because uh, you talk about one of one of our favourite writers generally on Book Shambles, someone we talk about the whole time. Um, so before we get to your magnificent writing, um, which is doing incredibly well as well, your, uh, your, your new book, we will get to that. But you have referenced James Baldwin. I've seen other people say as well, just that, as you said, James Baldwin is pretty much in your DNA. And I just wonder, what do you think? Because to me, he is his his relevance and the there's nothing dated as far as I can see in almost anything in his writing, in his interviews. How, when did you first become kind of captured by you know his his imagination and his his his, his fervor as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I th <clears throat> I think it's interesting. I think because a lot of people seem to be uh, really connecting now to a lot of his nonfiction, but I was really introduced to him first as a novelist. Um, I, I read Go Tell on the Mountain. That was a book that was just on my, my parents' sort of bookshelf when I was a kid. 
Um, so that was the first Baldwin novel that I read. And I remember, you know, I had a hard time getting through it because it's such a, there's such heaviness to that book. There is a feeling of, you know, you feel like you were in this hot, oppressive church the entire time that you're reading it. There's that almost physical tactile feeling of reading this book that, that again is the structure of the book because that's where you are the whole time in the present moment. Um, but, but I, I was introduced to him first as a, as a novelist and I think, you know, I, I, I think people speak to sort of this almost prophetic sense in his writing and the way that he thought about race. Uh, but I also just love him as an artist. I love uh, the, the, his storytelling. I love the way that he uses language. Um, that is really the first way that I was introduced to his work. Now, you, your, your essay from, I hope you don't mind me, because I, I know you've talked about it a lot before, but I don't know what to do with, with good white people. You, obviously, that moved to the forefront again uh, in, in the last few months, did you see a change in anything in terms of the context of it, the way it was used, the way people were perhaps communicating with you about it as well in, in that period of time, in that two years from the first time to, to now? I mean, yeah, I think that the first time I think there were more angry people (laughs) reading it. Um, I think this time I didn't see as much anger. Um, you know, I think the things that to me seem that they've changed is the idea of, of, Black Lives Matter becoming a the mainstream position, you know, that that's becoming you're watching a basketball game and those words are printed on the court. Like there's nothing there's there's not that same sense that this is something that's scary. Um, I, I don't think that's that's the same sense that it, that exists. Um, and I think that that's something similar in the way that people are approaching that essay. I don't think that like I've, I've seen it shared as people wanting to share it, but I haven't seen angry reactions in the way that initially there were people who would just be like, as soon as they saw the headline, their walls just kind of went up um, and they were immediately either defensive or just completely dismissive of it. I didn't get that sense anymore. Now let's get on to the, the novel. So the vanishing half, where, what's the starting point of that? Yeah, this is the tale of, of, of twins. Uh, and this is a tale in, in which you, you, you do, you, you, you divide them and you, you, you give them two separate possible paths through this. What was the starting point of that story? Um, it, it really started with the conversation I had with my mother, uh, where she told me about this town she remembered hearing about when she was growing up in Louisiana. And it was a town where black people were intermarrying so that their children would get lighter and lighter. Um, and uh, it was something I'd never heard of. I'd never really heard of towns like that. Um, so I became really fascinated at the possibility of of setting a novel in a place like that and then imagining what happens when two Swiss sisters who come from that place end up taking very diverging paths. And at what part, do you, when you're writing a book, is there something within you where you do think, right, I have, I have something specific to say, or do you find as you explore the characters, you begin to find uh, like kind of the subconscious meaning in it? I'm always interested in the, some authors we've spoken to, you know, the way that they set out the agenda, whether it's, you know, the, the narrative, all of those things. It is that huge board of post-it notes and others. It begins. And there's a point where you find yourself looking at the characters going, why is she doing that? And then you go, oh, I'm <laughs> making her do that. You know, I, I am the god of this creature. And so I, I wondered in your process of writing how you've kind of how you find that. I mean, I wish I was somebody who had a plan. I'm not. Um, I I knew I, I'm usually pretty good at knowing where I want to start. So I knew that I wanted to start with this woman who had left this town mysteriously returning with her dark skinned daughter. And I knew that that was the launching point, And that was really all that I knew. I knew that the sisters were going to split. 
I didn't know where or how or when. I didn't know that I was going to follow their daughters into the next generation and it was going to become this sort of you know multi-generational family story. I didn't expect that to happen. Um, to me, the the fun in writing is not knowing. I don't I don't like to outline or plan. Um, and obviously, it's probably why it takes me. It's a bit more of a circuitous journey as I'm trying to figure out what I'm writing. Um, but to me, that's the joy is just not knowing what's going to happen next yourself. Did you have without obviously? I don't want to give away any spoilers. But are the moments where you actually find yourself writing and you think, "I was not expecting a revelation like this. I was not expecting that the journey would would take me there and the character there." I think so. Um, there were there were lots of characters that I thought would be really minor characters who I became really fascinated in, and then I wanted to think more about their lives. And um, I think that's also the joy of the novel, which which kind of indulges in that that impulse to explore all of these different people and to to follow people throughout time. I think it is a form that lends itself to that type of wandering. Um, and that's, I think, why it's the form that I feel most at home in. Did you find having twins in this book, is there any point in the same way that a parent can sometimes be tr- tremendously worried that they go, oh, no, I really prefer this one so much more <laughs> and they're both my children. Did you have any points where you, you suddenly thought, oh, man, I've got to somehow the, 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 the imbalance has become too great? <laughs> um, I did worry about the balance in the story. Um, but I think, you know, my diplomatic parent answer is that I, I loved both of those characters in different ways. Um I think that, you know, Desiree is the one who you would want to be friends with. She's the one that you would want to hang out with. Um, but Stella also is the mysterious one. She was very interesting to me, trying to figure her out and trying to draw her in this way that felt really complex and realized. So they both presented different challenges and different joys, I would say. And in terms of, you know, at the point of it coming out, did you feel when it came out that the spotlight that was going to be on it maybe greater with more people wishing, you know, from many different angles, that kind of Rorschach test that a piece of literature can be, that the way that people would approach it now in June of this year would have been very different to the way they might have approached it, you know, in, in January. I mean, I yes. I, I remember my, my book came out the week, um, in, in the U.S. at least, in which um, the sort of attention turned to like these anti-racist reading lists. Like it was like the week that that was all happening. It was the week that people decided that books were going to be some way to make sense of what was happening. Um, It was really at this very specific moment that I think if the book had come out two weeks earlier or two weeks later, I think the reception would have been different. So it was very strange. Uh, It's obviously not something I ever uh, foresaw. Um, I didn't imagine that when this book came out, the conversation in in the U.S. and also throughout the world would be focused so squarely on race um, in a way that this book that was set in you know the '60s and '70s and '80s would be framed as timely. Um, I didn't think any of I'd expect any of that really to happen, and I think it it is something that I will always sort of connect to the, to this the story of releasing this book. There is that sense that sometimes you kind of read people in, in some of the, uh, the the kind of worst elements of the press where when they'll use the term, you know, it kind of somewhat sarcastically, timely, as if you literally in May went, hang on, this is very much the angle to go. I reckon I can knock out a novel in that time and they'll be able to send <laughs> that to the printers. Um, do you find, in terms of the reaction to it, um, have you... Do you find it in any way unwieldy having to uh, having that level of, of, of focus? Do you feel that when people have approached the book, as I said before, you know, that, that what they want for it, suddenly there's different demands on a story like this than there might have been? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as far as what you just said about the timeliness, I think the thing about that that's 
that's also a little funny to me is just that I think the themes in the book would have always been relevant to what has always been happening in this country. Um, and it's not necessarily that people were paying attention to it or that people wanted to focus on it, but, but we, you know, I mean, how many viral murders have I seen in my lifetime? You know, I'm 30 years old. Um, you know, how many sort of moments of racial reckoning have I seen already? So I think that it would have always been relevant, but I don't think it would have been framed in that way because of the idea of it wasn't, you know, the idea of, of what's sort of in the zeitgeist or what, you know, predominantly white Americans, what they are paying attention to. And it wasn't always this, this idea of race. Um, so, you know, I think I, I was grateful for the, uh, the people who turned to books in that moment, because I, I think there were lots of other things that people could have said, they could have said, Hey, let's watch movies, let's watch TV. Let's, you know, there were a lot of other ways to try to make sense of a cultural moment. So I, I, I thought it was cool that people were turning to books. I was glad that, that they turned to mine. Uh, but that being said, I also just felt, uh, you know, I didn't want the, want to have the pressure of educating because I, I'm not an educator. Um, I am not, you know, I didn't write a book like the books on these anti-racist reading lists, which are for the purpose of education. And, and for me, I'm a storyteller. I, I just want to tell a story. And if you learn something for, from it, if it makes you think about something differently, then that's cool and that's good. But I, I mostly just want to tell a story that makes people feel something and, and experience um, the beauty and the pain and the pleasure that we get from stories. I think the, the story thing is that there's a lovely collection. I think there's going to be a follow up called um, Others that came out uh, in, in the UK a few months ago. And I think a version's come out in the US. And the whole idea behind it was that a story can take you into shoes that you would not normally wear. And in a way that uh, a nonfiction book, it might take you somewhere in history, but it kind of you 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 are journeying as an observer. Whereas sometimes you can find yourself so wedded to a character, you can find yourself in with a level of empathy, which I think I don't know if you'd agree, but which which is not necessarily possible with with or as easy with nonfiction. Yeah, I think it is a different experience. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are tagging me. Um, on Instagram and, you know, saying, you know, this is, you know, I haven't read any books by a black author this, this year, and I'm going to be intentional about doing that now. Um, there were a lot of people, I think, having these moments of realizing the ways in which they had built their own lives were structured around race in ways that they were not aware, previously aware. Um, and it was strange for this book being an avatar for them to, to come to that conclusion. It was strange. So when you were growing up, you talked about that bit of reaching into books. Who were the, Do you remember the first books where you really had that level of, you know, when you love a book, when you can't let go of that book, when you, you, you fear that if you lose the book, you're not going to get to the end of the story? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, I think for me, the, the first book, I, the first novel I think I really loved was in elementary school and I read The Outsiders. Um, and I, it's, I, nobody believes me when I tell them this because, you know, it's a story about these, like, you know, white boys in Oklahoma who are in a gang. And I'm like, I love that book. Um, it was, I think, one of the first sort of novels I read because I was, I think, maybe the third or fourth grade and a teacher gave it to me. And she was like, you, I see that you are a, a, an advanced reader here. Here's something more challenging for you than what we're reading. And I just loved that book. Uh, I remember that was the first book that made me think like, oh, I want to write a novel someday. Um, and, you know, as time went by, I mean, I had a lot of these books from my parents' bookshelves, like I said, I, you know, Go Tell on the Mountain, Native Sun, um, uh, The Color Purple. Um, that was a huge 
uh, text for me, The Bluest Eye, a lot of these sort of classic um, works of black American literature that, that my parents just had on their shelves. Um, those were all books that I turned to. And then eventually like wanting to read these longer books like Roots. I remember that was such a big deal for me because it was such a long book. <laughs> so I felt personally accomplished when I, when I finally reached the end of it. Um, you know, a lot of these books that, that were very foundational for me, but they were books that I grew up just seeing in the house. My parents had them on the shelves. So I just, I stole them and, and I read them myself. Because I'm also interested in S.E. Hinton as well, because I, I think in the U.K. there was kind of a boom, a couple of booms, and isn't as well known now. In the in the U.S., is S.E. Is Hinton is still pretty much on the reading list? or I, You know, I don't know, because people, when I talk to people like my age, everybody is like, really? So I don't, I don't know that it's the same cultural touchstone. I mean, for me, I read, I read, you know, I think I read all of her novels after I read The Outsiders. I just like read all of them. And I was just really into her and and these worlds that she created again of, you know, these like, you know, white guys like in rodeos and, you know, all these books that were that were so far outside of anything I had ever experienced or imagined. Um, but again, somebody who wrote, the, you know, wrote The Outsiders when she was herself a teenager. And that was really cool to me that she did that. Um, and you know, they, there were the film adaptations, I guess, in the eighties, um, I think a few of them were adapted, but I don't know that kids, <laughs> I don't know that, yeah, like, yeah, I, I don't know that kids read Essie Hinton. I don't know that, that she's lingered in that way, but maybe, I know she's like on Twitter and things like that. So maybe, maybe she's still, um, she's still someone that, that kids read. I don't know. Cool. I didn't know about Twitter. That's because because that's what I wonder. Because I thought Essie Hinton very much my kind of generation, and, yeah. and even a little bit before that. So that was kind of quite surprised me. Um, <laughs> when did you when did you get to the point of of thinking I want to write? Yeah, I mean, I I remember when I was in elementary school, I would write like little short stories on the family computer. Um, I always just really loved stories. I was a reader and I would just sit around thinking of stories and, and write them on the computer. I remember I wrote like a little play or like it was like a puppet show or something. My mom helped me make the puppets for it. And we did it at the school. You know, I was, I was always doing little things like that. Um, and then I think as I got into high school, I started to think about wanting to write a novel a little bit more seriously. And I think for me then it was just sort of, uh, it was kind of the equivalent of reading, finishing the, the big book. It was just a, sort of an accomplishment of if I can reach the end of a novel, it will be really cool that I wrote, you know, 300 pages or whatever. Um, so I really thought of it in, in those terms. I didn't think of it in like the idea that, you know, you write a novel and then, okay, you have to do it again because you have to revise it. Um, and I certainly didn't think about it as if it were something that was going to become sort of my, my life's work. Uh, but it was just something that I really wanted to accomplish. And, and that's when I started to think, I think, more, more seriously about writing novels. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Who do you enjoy reading? I mean, when you're writing, what are you able to read? Because I know that some authors that you know you can't, some can't read anything that's anywhere near what what they're doing, and and will read. You know, I, I know you know a lot of writers who just go, I, I don't write anything like Agatha Christie. I can read Agatha Christie, you know that kind of. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't really uh, feel any way about that. I I will read whatever I want to read when I'm writing, and sometimes I think it can be helpful to read something that is similar to what you're trying to do. Um, and, and sometimes it will, 
sometimes you see the way that somebody did something and think, oh, I want to do something completely different than that. And that can be really helpful. Um, so for me, I think, you know, the, the books that I have really enjoyed recently, I loved The Glass House. Um, I, that was the first book that I read after the lockdown began. And it, once I finally could finish reading a novel again, um, because I was definitely struggling just to concentrate back in March. Um, so I really loved that book. I loved Actress um, by Anne Enright. Um, and I'm the, the new thing that I'm working on is about fame. So that was um, a book that um, was really fascinating to me of, of how do you write about a famous person so intimately? Um, that, that sort of question of fame and intimacy is really on the forefront of my mind. Uh, but I'm, I'm writing about music. So it was cool to read this again, this thing that is kind of similar to what I want to do, but in a very different context, a different setting, all of those things. So that, that was helpful to me. Um, so, so that book was really great. Um, and I read on Michael Jackson, uh, by Margot Jefferson, which is a really fascinating piece of, of criticism. And I just love the idea of a very slim book. That's just about one person and, um, and particularly somebody who's so, um, enigmatic, controversial, problematic, um, as Michael Jackson. So, um, that was also a book that I really loved. So some of these things are kind of swirling around what I'm what I'm thinking about for for this next project. But uh, but they're also different stylistically and formally, and I find that actually really creatively generative. How have you found um, writing and developing a book during you know this kind of period of lockdown? I know obviously, but I can't remember which state you're in at the moment. But obviously, you know, it's been a very difficult for a lot of people in a lot of states, the the US and and you know across the world. Some people seem to have found this period of going, I can cut down my procrastination. Some people seem to have found that the the limited space they have has really allowed their procrastination to expand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard because, you know, I, I mean, first, I will say I'm very fortunate. I was always able to work from home from the beginning of the lockdown. Um, so I, I had that that uh, that peace of mind of, of being able to be at home and also being able being used to working from home as a writer. I, I often am just writing from home. Um, and, you know, for me, I was able to get a draft done earlier in quarantine. And a lot of that was because I was quarantining by myself. So truly had nothing else, you know, nowhere to go, nobody to talk to while I was sitting in my apartment. Um, and, and that allowed me to sort of channel some of that anxiety, I think about everything <laughs> into a creative project and, and truly, I think kept me sort of psychologically and emotionally afloat because it gave me something to think about every day and something to work on every day. And it gave me a feeling of momentum in a time in which it felt like life had just kind of stopped. So, I was really grateful for that and it was helpful in that way. Um, but I think, you know, beyond the obvious stresses of the moment, there's also a feeling of, of you know, creative, I think, stuckness when, when you don't experience anything new, you don't see anything new. Um, you know, I, I live in New York and, you know, the idea of, of you know, I was at back then, it's like, you know, you go out once a week to get groceries the rest of the time you're in your apartment. And that's not, you know, the experience that you normally have when you're living in a city. There's something that, that is, I think, creatively generative, just taking a walk and going someplace you had never been and meeting pe people who are new. And all of those experiences, I think, do feed into the creative work. So I think there's something also difficult to to push past that feeling of I am just staring at these walls. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I, I was able to, to, to reach the end of my draft, but I was also so deep into it at that point. I think if I had to start a new project at that point, I don't think I could have done it in lockdown. 
That is a weird thing, isn't it, about creativity, which is you can sit staring at a screen and it somewhere that idea is in your head, but it cannot shift until you have walked around and you have just suddenly seen, you know, you've you've seen a songbird or you've seen a subway, whatever you've seen, and mm-hmm. you suddenly go, Oh, there it was. And I, I find that one of the most annoying things about writing, which is going, <laughs> but it was in there all the time. Why yeah. why can I not? I mean, do, do you ever have uh, I, sh- I should be care about it, but that moment of kind of just a block where you just think and and how do you fight against that? Yeah, I mean, I used to really love walking around with my headphones on. Um, I think also eavesdropping. I had a, I had a writer friend who's complaining about that with social distancing. Um, that that it's it's sort of ruined eavesdropping or made it more difficult. Um, but that's something also that I love, just sitting somewhere and listening to people talk. Um, occasionally, people will say very interesting things. Um, so I think that that can be something that's that's generative. But I think there's something also to just that feeling of physical movement of. Um, I don't like I feel I don't even feel that way when I'm in my car like when I'm when I'm driving it doesn't feel the same as when I'm walking you know it feels uh, it feels like there's something about just moving your body and and experiencing the world in a physical and tactile way and I, I think that that's something that has shifted right now and is something that you know is different now than it certainly was in March April but um, but but certainly that experience I think has shifted and I do think that that affects you creatively. And in terms of, as as you said, that socialising in in the previous normal ways is is kind of gone. But the uh, in terms of your communication with readers, I would imagine that at the moment could be, you know, th- those those who can uh, communicate with you, has that been more forthcoming? Do you think has that been have people been because people are looking for an interesting conversation, and you you and people, you know, the the love for your work is very great. So do you find there's more communication that you're able to spend more time perhaps with the readers of your work? I think so. I mean, there are certainly people who uh, are reaching out a lot more than I think after my first book came out. Um, people reaching out on social media. Um, and I think also the sort of rise of the virtual event. I think that that's actually a great thing. I think um, I'm hoping, you know, I, I want, I, I'm hoping that, you know, by the time my next book is finished and, and out and everything, that we will be in a space of doing um, physical book tours. And I love the book tour. I love being able to actually meet readers and, and sign books and, and all of that, but at the same time, there's something so cool about the virtual event that people, you don't have to live in New York or LA or London or Paris, or, you know, you don't have to live in these huge sort of metropolitan cultural centers in order to experience culture. Um, so I think that there's something very cool about those types of events that, that you can connect to people in that way and they can see you in your living room or see you in your house. There is like an intimacy to that. That's very, uh, that's very different. And I don't think I expected that when I when I sort of launched into these kind of virtual events. I thought it would be very strange just talking at my computer all day. Um, but but really, there's there's something about you know people being able to ask you questions and seeing you know people's faces and and all of that. There's a way in which I think the sort of book world has been able to adjust to to perhaps better than than most industries. I would say I think the book world has has adjusted to this this new normal. Um, I think better than a lot of other industries that have just been able to. I think there is something you're right. It's very interesting about because uh, in the UK, they've tried to put on some drive in comedy and music shows Mm -hmm. and they've all stiffed because it's like, who wants to sit in a car 
when people are now having this experience where, as you said, you're, you're, you're in your room, you're kind of, and you're looking straight into the camera and mm-hmm. people I think feel there is a very interesting level of connection considering yeah. how kind of, you know, lo-fi the, it, in one way the technology is compared to what people are used to with, you know, right. television and, and movies. I think so. I mean, I think it's the same way in which, you know, people like musicians performing on Instagram live or something like that. Um, I remember when a lot of that was happening at the beginning of, of quarantine, you just have these, you know, great musicians who are just like, I'm going to, you know, perform for 30 minutes on Instagram. Anybody can log on and watch. Um, I think those are mediums that we are used to, to maybe just more primed to experience in this sort of immediate and intimate way versus uh, these other forms that you're talking about have, there's more of an expectation of, of not only production, but also sometimes I think community. Uh, you know, I think the laughing alone is not as much fun as laughing with other people, you know? Um, and, uh, and at least for me, like books, these are always been spaces that I've experienced, uh, by myself, you know, like sometimes going to readings and you're with other people, but usually that's the only kind of communal book experience that I've had, um, usually most of it is just me reading by myself and then eventually talking, finding somebody else who's read that book and talking to them about it. Um, and I think, again, I think that's changing. I think there are these, all of these, um, online book communities, obviously lots of book clubs, lots of zoom book clubs that, that are, that are happening in this moment. Um, but I, but I think there is a, a way in which readers are maybe more primed for the sort of direct intimacy of author addressing reader, because that's what you are experiencing when you're reading a book. In the normal kind of book festival and book media, do, do you find, because I know that some authors, they find that transition from having spent a year sat alone with their own thoughts, creating multiple characters that are only in their head, to then standing up in front of, you know, 100, 500, 1,000 people, whatever it is. Sometimes you can see people in their, their first kind of book festivals and they just, I don't know how to transfer, you know, these people are real. And other people go, finally, I'm, I'm out of the turret, I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm somewhere in between. Um, I, it, it is strange to me. I don't think I'm somebody who, like, I, I know those writers you're talking about who will just like work a room. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm quite there. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not somebody who, who's, I mean, I'm not extroverted. I'm not somebody who feels more comfortable speaking in front of people than I do, sort of hidden behind a screen or behind the page. Um, but that being said, I also, I think that was one thing that I, that I missed with not having the physical book tour or these, or these book festivals. I had so much travel. I was going to be, um, in London. I was actually gonna be in London for my birthday. Um, I was going to, um, you know, I was going to Paris. I was going to South Africa. Um, I was, I had all these, um, plans and, and I think that there is something that I, I think the thing that you miss with the virtual events is that there's not the energy from the audience. There's not that sense of the exchange, which is, you know, I'm, I am giving you something and you're giving me something back. Um, I think that that's, that's the hard thing because it's, it's not, there's not that same feeling of when you're in a group, in a room with a group of readers. And, and I think that that can feel like a reward for a lot of writers, because like you said, you've been working by yourself for so long and then you have this experience where you're with these people and there is that exchange for the first time. And it's not just you, at your, at your computer, you know, pushing something out into the world. Um, so, so I miss that. And I also miss, um, meeting other writers. I think I had such a, uh, cool, uh, experience with my first book, all of these, uh, festivals I was able to do. And it feels, there's like a weird, 
kind of summer camp type of vibe a little bit when you're just like at the hotel and you're like, oh, there goes Colson Whitehead or, you know, like, um, you know, Anne Enright, I met her when we were, um, I think we were in New Zealand and we were like walking together back to the hotel and, you know, things like that, that you, that you experience that are, that are so cool. Um, and particularly when you're a debut novelist and, and it was so cool for me to meet these writers. Um, so I miss that too. I think being able to go to other writers events and meet them at these spaces. Um, I, I, I miss that social aspect of, of touring and festivals for sure. Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully back next year. And uh, that means you have to do the paperback tour rather than the hardback tour, I suppose. That's I one, hope so. One, uh, <laughs> um, are you, and just a final thing, what, is there a book that is the book you're most likely to buy for other people apart from your own? Uh, but the uh, one, which is the one that you most want to share? Um, I think the one that I most recommend is Bel Canto by Ann Patchett, uh, which I just think is is such a phenomenal book. I think it's, it's a book that I marvel at because I, I, I love books that make me think I could never do that. And that's a book that I'm like, I could never in my wildest dreams do this. Um, the idea of setting this novel in a house, like you're, it's, you know, sort of, this is like, like a bottle episode of TV, but it's a bottle novel and you're just in this house the entire time. Um, and there's this, you know, this hostage situation is the premise um, so there's like the danger and the conflict of that, but, but also amidst that there's these beautiful meditations on music and art and language and love and all of, there's this huge expansive world happening. Um, and it's a weirdly prescient, um, a weirdly, um, apt novel to think about now while we're all stuck at home. Um, but the, the idea of being trapped inside a home and, and still having a big vibrant life, a big vibrant emotional life. Um, there's something about that book that I just, I, I love, um, and I love recommending it to all my friends. Brilliant. And, uh, and the vanishing half, of course, which we recommend now is, uh, is, is available and, uh, well worth reading. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, there's just so many, it's, it's one of those stories where the, the, I've, I've really found it utterly immersive from the part it's, it's an interesting thing some books you kind of sometimes I th i've found three or four chapters you know that that bit where you go i know i'm going to get rewarded but this this one grabs very fast and it's uh you also were you top of the did you find out you were a bestseller on your birthday i can't remember i was reading something <laughs> somewhere it was not far off wasn't it it wasn't far off it was a crazy crazy birthday week um i i was very worried about spending it by myself in quarantine but i had so much good news about the book so it was a great way to bring in a new year Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I look forward to uh, actually seeing you in uh, a real life festival after uh, people have finally zoomed out of all of the Zoom and Skype festivals <laughs> and all of those other things. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the address that you go to in your browser of choice to support the podcast. You can also rate, like, subscribe, do all those things on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to the show. That helps us out tremendously as well. Have a great week. Uh, stay safe, stay cool. And we will be back next week with another new episode. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.